Give me Chatillon, MacArthur. Give me Chatillon or a list of 5,000 casualties. AEF, 5th Corps Commander Major General Charles Sumrall demanded. If this brigade does not capture Chatillon, you can publish a casualty list of the entire brigade with the brigade commander's name at the top, replied Brigadier General Douglas MacArthur. Generous son of a bitch, ain't he? commented a nearby doughboy. Supposed exchange before the American assault of Côte de Châtillon, northeast of Saint-Maurens, France, October 13th, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 86, Breaking the Kriemhilde Stellung, part 2. We're going to start this off with a public service announcement, and this may be more for my British listeners, but hey, everyone should listen. If you're visiting the Arras battlefields, do mind the speed limit between the villages of Vie-en-Artois and Ocor. Be on the lookout for these big gray boxes by the side of the road. They're speed cameras, folks. Especially look uh, in that patch of green near the British cemetery. <sighs> Les Sai. Now to the usual admin notes. PayPal shout out to Hans. Thank you so very much for your generous gift, sir. It means a lot to me. Another PayPal shout out to Donald. And also a humble thanks to you, sir, for the priceless gifts you gave me and your spirit of friendship. I really think it just goes to show you once again how the internet can be a tool for connecting with kind and generous souls. Thank you so much, sir. On Patreon, shout-outs to new patrons John and Kevin. Looks like we will be seeing you both on next year's Battlefield study. Certainly hope so. Thank you both so much for signing up to support the show. I won't do any pitches this time, as I'd like to focus on where we're headed for the foreseeable future in the podcast. So, we've been in the Meuse-Argonne for four calendar years now, and I realize to some listeners that we've been there a very long time. A little background on why we've been here so long. I'm going to blame this on the day job. 
particularly the day job I had when I started the Mozargon series, um, that day job took up a lot of my time. And also, for the first two years of covering this battle, I was deep into a master's program. Then COVID came, and as a matter of fact, I'm still not quite sure why I wasn't able to be more productive during that time. But earlier this year, I switched day jobs, and this new one has allowed me much more free time to work on the podcast. With all of that, I do hope you're all continuing to enjoy the show. Right now, we are in mid-October 1918, and in today's episode, the AEF will be attacking the Côte de Châtillon, another link in the Kriemhilde line. Due to some higher-level events in our story, from here, we need to visit with two men who've been a part of the Merzargon, but have not yet received a more thorough treatment. General John Pershing, and Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett. There will be an episode for each of these men. After that, there will be coverage of the AEF's rest and refit prior to November 1st, 1918, the air war and some of its more notable personalities, the ongoing operations on the ground until November 1st, and the final assault launched by the AEF on November 1st. After that, we'll follow the AEF until the armistice on the 11th of November, 1918. With all of this to still cover, I envision some 10 to 12 episodes left to the Merzargon battle. Once the battle itself is complete, I'll release some Patreon material I've had saved up for a long time, and likely do a couple of supplemental episodes before the next battle is taken on. I will likely go dark for a while too, although of course the podcast itself will always uh, be available. So vaguely speaking, this is the general plan for the next few months ahead. We've still got a lot of ground to cover, and again, I hope you'll stay with me. All right, let's get back into the line. Last episode, we saw how the 5th Division struggled to grind through the German lines on the right of the attack front, and how in the center, the veteran 32nd Division had battered itself against the Côte de Marie until Captain Strom and his seven-man patrol figured out a better way to break through. On the left of the attack front, the 42nd Rainbow Division had mixed results. Its 83rd Brigade on the left had advanced towards the villages of Saint-Georges and Londres et Saint-Georges, but had been stopped far short of them with significant casualties. The 84th Brigade on the right had seized Hill 288 ahead of them, but had kicked a hornet's nest on another hill in front of them named Côte de Châtillon. Châtillon needed to be taken for the advance to have any hope of continuing. More attacks were ordered for October 15th. In the 32nd Division sector, there was little new progress. In and around Romagna village, the doughboys of the 128th Infantry made no progress that day. To their left, the 126th Infantry pushed up to the northern edge of the Bois de Chauvignon, 
to the northwest of Romagna village. The doughboys of the 127th to their left swept out the Bois de Romagna north of Côte d'Amerie until they were stopped near Tuileries Farm, a small complex of farm buildings at the northeast end of the Côte de Châtillon. Once the men of the 127th were seen by the Germans on the hill, Captain Paul Schmidt wrote that he and his men were hit with, quote, an almost unbelievable storm of shot and shell, machine guns, trench mortars, anti-tank, artillery, and gas shells met us as we reached the clearing. Our lines staggered from the blow, wavered for an instant, and then retreated into the woods, leaving behind several killed and wounded, end quote. The Germans shot so much gas at the Bois de Romagne that American troops were killed by the huge number of canisters impacting in the woods. Captain Schmidt wrote of the rest of that day, The rain continued to come down in torrents, and the shelter holes occupied by the men filled up with water, leaving us with only one alternative, getting out of the water and exposing ourselves to the enemy shell fire and possible death, or to remain in the holes with our bodies submerged in the cold water. Between the two, we decided to remain in the shelter holes. Dysentery aggravated the already bad condition, and the men began to speculate on what would happen to them were they compelled to remain in this position all night. To add to the horror of the situation, our own artillery shot several shells into our lines about three o'clock in the afternoon. These conditions were similar everywhere and the 32nd Division itself was nearing the end of its combat effectiveness. On the 42nd Division's front, all four regiments attacked again. In 83rd Brigade, the order that came down was brief. The attack will continue today. The Ohioans of the 166th Infantry attacked again towards Saint-Georges. German gas and high-explosive shells rained down on American positions starting at 0620 on the morning of the 15th, well over an hour before the attack was to begin. Promised tank support never arrived. The Americans attacked without them, moving out under a rolling barrage that lifted ahead 100 meters every six minutes. After sharp and bloody firefights with the Germans, the Doughboys hunkered down as American artillery slammed into the enemy positions ahead until noontime. When they advanced again, they were enfiladed by machine guns to their right. Fire was coming from the sector of the neighboring 165th Infantry. By early afternoon, Four attacks had been launched with no success. To the right of the 166th, the New Yorkers of the 165th attacked again towards Londres Saint Georges, moving out under the same rolling barrage that the 166th had in its sector. Lieutenant Colonel Wild Bill Donovan was out in front, still in his fresh uniform and medals. He was at his best that morning in the roar of artillery and machine gun fire. 
Come on, fellows. It's better ahead than it is here. Come on. We'll have them on a run before long. Donovan led from the front as bullets whizzed by. Come on now, men. They can't hit me, and they won't hit you. It was shortly after this that a German machine gun bullet did indeed slam into his shin bone. Donovan, however, would not be evacuated while his men were in the midst of a fight for their lives. He stayed in command, calling in artillery and putting his Stokes mortar teams to work. Father Duffy, the regimental chaplain for the 165th, said of Wild Bill, he goes into it in exactly the frame of mind that he held as a college man when he marched out on the gridiron before a football game, and his one thought throughout is to push his way through. Cool is the word the men use of him, and cool is their highest epithet of praise for a man of daring, resolution, and indifference to danger. It was clear that Donovan enjoyed combat, and it was good that he stayed in the field that day. As the American attack broke down, the Germans immediately counterattacked. As exposed as his men, Donovan directed his mortars to dump everything they had right onto the oncoming enemy, and his mortar men delivered. But Father Duffy was no less inspiring that morning. A private Tim Nolan, originally from the Bronx, said later, wherever things were the hottest, there was Father Duffy, crawling around from shell hole to shell hole, telling us it was not as bad as it seemed to stick it out a while longer. The German counterattack failed, but so did the 165th's attack. Artillery and small arms fire were coming from not just the front, but from their right as well from that damned Cook de Chatillon hill. Donovan made a bold and risky decision. He ordered his men to pull back. If you recall from many episodes ago, retreat was expressly forbidden in the AEF. That was it for the 83rd Brigade that day. Corporal Martin Hogan, wounded in the hand, saw as he headed towards the rear, quote, Men being carried away with legs shattered, with blood-drenched clothes from the flow of ghastly body wounds, and I passed one man sitting against a tree with half his head torn away. He must have seated himself here after the first shock to rest and have died moments later, end quote. Fifth Corps Commander Major General Charles Summerall was supremely pissed off at the brigade's showing for the day, and he came looking for blood. Summerall was another hard charger in the mold of Pershing and Bullard, and he brooked no dissent or negative talk. Brigadier General Michael J. Lenahan, the brigade commander, and Colonel Harry Mitchell, commander of the 165th, were relieved of command. Colonel Hoff, commander of the 166th Infantry, escaped the chopping block. So, too, did Wild Bill Donovan, who was on his way to the rear by the time Summerall came storming down. Instead, Wild Bill earned the Medal of Honor for his leadership that day. On the 84th Brigade's front, the day was also a hard one. 
On the far right, the Alabamans of the 167th Infantry sent out combat patrols from the just-captured Hill 288. The Iowans of the 168th Infantry, to their left, pushed up through the Bois de Romagne to Hill 242, to the east of Côte de Châtillon. From Hill 242, the Doughboys of the 168th swept down to La Tuilerie Farm at the northeast end of Côte de Châtillon. A heavy fight developed as the Americans captured some, but not all, of the farm buildings. The Doughboys pulled back, regrouped, and attacked again, taking all but the barn. This was when German machine gun fire from Côte de Châtillon rained down so heavily that the men of the 168th had to pull back into the woods. Later that night, Brigadier General Douglas MacArthur stated he would lead a patrol himself to Châtillon to probe the enemy defenses on the hill. 38 years old in 1918, Douglas MacArthur had done well for himself in the Army. And a quick break here. You guys want to hear his name with a Boston accent? Dougie MacArthur. You're welcome. A brigadier general and commander of the 84th Brigade, MacArthur had already been awarded the Distinguished Service Cross and the Citation Star some six times, the second being the predecessor to the Silver Star. The son of a Civil War veteran who had earned the Medal of Honor, MacArthur had grown up a military brat and followed in his father's footsteps. Upon America's entry into the Great War, MacArthur suggested assembling a division from National Guard units from across the country. From this idea, the 42nd Division was born, and young Douglas was tapped to be its first chief of staff. MacArthur led from the front. Prior to this engagement in the Meuse-Argonne, we last saw MacArthur and George Patton both trying to outman each other's manliness as they stood exposed to enemy fire in the Saint-Miel salient. But even before Saint-Miel, MacArthur had made a name for himself by being up front with his men and not hanging back where things were safer. He was also that type of person who just couldn't follow the established rules, which is interesting because he chose the military as his lifelong career. MacArthur had a flair for fashion. He wore a turtleneck his mother had knit him and a heavy scarf. His officer's cap had the metal retaining band inside it removed, so it had that crusher style seen more during the next World War. And he always wore that hat at a rakish angle on his head. He was never in regulation uniform, and to taunt the war gods, he did not wear a protective mask against gas attacks. He just wouldn't, because he was Douglas MacArthur. Having promised Major General Charles Summerall he'd take Châtillon Hill or die along with his entire brigade, MacArthur set off with his patrol in the early hours of October 16th. There was a report that a gap had been found in the German wire. As the story goes, MacArthur led his patrol out to find that gap and to see if it could be exploited for the morning's attack just a few hours away. The general and his men moved through no man's land as stealthily as possible, staying low or even crawling over the muddy ground when necessary. 
The Germans must have been alerted somehow, as they opened up a fierce barrage on MacArthur and his men. Each man dove into the nearest shell hole and prayed to whichever god commanded his faith, and they simply had to wait out the horrific shelling. When it lifted, MacArthur was up and on the move, trying to locate each man with orders to follow him back to friendly lines. He thought the men were asleep at first. Drumfire bombardments were known to have a soporific effect on targeted men sometimes. Then he realized his men weren't asleep. Everyone in his patrol was dead. The Côte de Châtillon is an approximately 250-meter-high hill running southwest to northeast, and it sits about a kilometer and a half southeast of the village of Londres et Saint-Georges. At its southwest end is Moussard Farm, a small group of buildings that today seems to be used as a hunting lodge more than as a working farm. At the northeast end is Tuileries Farm, a farm complex that today sits on private land and has been abandoned. At the time, Tuileries Farm was a working farm until the German occupation. Podcasters note, when we visited Tuileries Farm this past August, with the owner's permission, we found there was a huge badger living in the main farm building. We explored around the building, but stayed on guard. Me, personally, I wasn't looking to have my face ripped off by some angry mother badger defending her den. No thank you. Chatillon Hill had been crisscrossed with trench lines for defense, with machine gun nests covering every angle of approach. Contemporary sources state the Germans also had a 77mm field gun on the crest. Taking the hill by frontal assault was not going to work. Major Ravi Norris of the 167th Infantry had an idea. He would lead an assault party from a hedge to the gap in the wire, which apparently had been found. As he did so, American artillery would flail the hill from one side to the other. Once Norris and his men were through the wire, they'd stay low along a hedge running on the southeast side of Châtillon. When the barrage lifted, the hill would be assaulted from two directions by the 167th and 168th regiments, and Norris and his men would attack the German left flank on the hill. Norris was hit in the heel just as he was making it through the wire gap. The barrage had just lifted, and one of his captains had already taken charge. The Alabama doughboys poured fire and maneuvered into the German flank on the hill, and the Germans weren't ready for it. The line began to collapse as the Alabamans pushed up the slope towards the crest. On the northeast end, the Iowans of the 168th seized Tuileries Farm and charged up the hill. A storm of machine gun fire sent them back down, but they tried again. The defending Germans launched counterattacks to throw the Americans off the hill. The battle seesawed until the doughboys cleared the crest in the afternoon, throwing the Germans off the Côte de Châtillon. Securing the hill was another part of the battle, for the Germans weren't ready to give up on it. 
Private Thomas Nybar of Company M, 167th Infantry, could attest to that. Quote, On the afternoon of 16 October 1918, when Côte de Châtillon had just been gained after bitter fighting and the summit of the strong bulwark in the Kriemhilderstellung was being organized, Private Nybar was sent out on patrol with his automatic rifle squad to enfilade enemy machine gun nests. As he gained the ridge, he set up his automatic rifle and was directly thereafter wounded in both legs by fire from a hostile machine gun on his flank. The advance wave of the enemy troops, counterattacking, had about gained the ridge, and although practically cut off and surrounded, the remainder of his detachment being killed or wounded, this gallant soldier kept his automatic rifle in operation to such effect that by his own efforts, and by fire from the skirmish line of his company, at least 100 yards in his rear, the attack was checked. The enemy wave being halted and lying prone, four of the enemy attacked Private Nybar at close quarters. These he killed. He then moved alone among the enemy lying on the ground about him, in the midst of the fire from his own lines, and by coolness and gallantry, captured 11 prisoners at the point of his pistol and, although painfully wounded, brought them back to our lines. The counterattack in full force was arrested to a large extent by the single efforts of this soldier, whose heroic exploits took place against the skyline in full view of his entire battalion. End quote. This, of course, is the citation provided for Private Nybar's Medal of Honor. Major Norris himself laughed the laugh of intense stress when he was told the hill had been taken. A sergeant found him still sitting in the wire gap at the bottom of the hill. Côte de Châtillon, another link in the Kriemhilderstellung, had been taken, and another hole had been ripped open in the German defenses. More holes were to come over the next few days, although the Germans remained the resolute fighters they almost always were. But there were events taking place behind the American lines to which we must draw our attention now. These were small but watershed events that would have an effect on the future course of the American offensive in the Meuse. On October 12th, AEF Commander-in-Chief General John Pershing had informed his first Corps commander, Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett, that Liggett would assume command of 1st Army on October 16th. Pershing could no longer both lead the AEF as a whole and lead the 1st Army's combat operations in the Meuse-Argonne front. It was too much for one man to do. For a man like Pershing... It was a very tough decision to make. So it's time we take a look at the man who commanded the AEF, General John J. Pershing. That, folks, will be our next episode. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter 
at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.